Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My Bible is open, of course, to Hebrews the sixth chapter. In Hebrews chapter six, that's where we're beginning all of these lessons as we think about the great and important theme of hope and what that means and how we can be anchored to hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6 and verse 18 is where I'm going to begin. I should tell you how much I appreciate you being here tonight. There are so many good things that you could be doing on a Saturday night, and you have chosen to come and worship the Lord, spend time in His Word, and be around God's people. That's just an outstanding decision. I appreciate you for that. The Lord appreciates you for that. We're going to work together in the Word of God, learn about hope. I would remind you where we are in this series and where we're going. We're going to think about hope when life gets disappointing in just a moment. Tomorrow morning in Bible class, we'll talk about hope for overcoming sin. And then maybe in some ways the theme lesson for this whole series, our hope of heaven and how certain can we be. Now, we are really going to get there. Or is that just something for an elite few Christians? Most will never know the glory of heaven. We want to talk about that tomorrow. And then tomorrow afternoon in the 5 o'clock hour, we want to think a little bit about how to share that hope that we have in an effective and powerful way. So there's where we are and there's where we're going. And right now... I'm in Hebrews chapter 6. Find a Bible, borrow one from your neighbor, pull one from the pew rack, or get something working on your phone. Let's be in the text of the Word of God. This is Hebrews 6, please, verse 18, where the Hebrew writer says, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Love talking about hope. Love talking about the optimism that comes with hope, that bounce in our step that comes with it. We talked about that last night, but I am going to start in a difficult place this evening. I'm going to start with one of those days that just gets you a big black X. You're looking at a picture of Teddy Roosevelt's daily diary. And that is dated February the 14th, Valentine's Day, 1884. And Teddy Roosevelt drew nothing but a big black X in his diary that day. And then simply wrote, the light has gone out in my life because on that day, Teddy Roosevelt's mother passed away. And a few hours later, his precious wife passed away as she gave birth to their first child. In one day, he lost his mother and his wife. It was a crushing blow for T.R. He would go from there to decide that his life in politics was ended and shattered. All he could do now, he said, was become a cowboy. And he boarded a train from New York City and went to the ranch that he had bought several years previously in the badlands of the Dakotas. And he told several of his friends, I'm never coming back. My life now is out in the West. I'm just going to be a cowboy. Now, if you know anything about American history, you know that Teddy Roosevelt did make his way back to New York City. And in fact, Teddy Roosevelt got back into politics. It went pretty well. Teddy Roosevelt became president of the United States. One of our best presidents ever. His face is chiseled on Mount Rushmore now. But interestingly, at various places in Teddy Roosevelt's life, he would talk about the time that he was a cowboy in the Dakota Badlands. And he would do so almost wistfully. In fact, there was a couple of campaign stops when he was campaigning out west and his old cowboy friends would come around and he would sit and eat and drink coffee with them and they would reminisce. And T.R. would talk about how much he missed the cowboy life. Makes you think about how different American history could have turned out if he'd stayed a cowboy. But what I really think about is how many people go on to be president of the United States and in some ways that was kind of... Well, that was kind of their second choice. They'd almost rather just been a cowboy. 
I wonder if in your life you've ever been in a situation where you just felt like you were going to draw a big black X. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where what you ended up with was not your first choice. You ended up kind of taking second choice. And of course, you know what? For most of us, that second choice situation isn't nearly as good as somebody who took their second choice and ended up being president of the United States. You hear that second choice language all the time when you hear somebody talk about the job or the career they had. Oh, I wish I had done this instead. You hear that second choice when somebody says, you know, I never did get married. Always wanted to. Or when someone talks about their marriage and it is clear that their marriage is not what they had hoped it would be. Or maybe the plan was to have kiddos, a big bunch of kiddos. But you know what? The nursery is still empty. I thought by now... I just knew we were going to. All of those things announce the disappointment that life has dealt us and that somehow, instead of getting what we really wanted, we're stuck with our second choice. I can show you a place like that in the Bible. Do you have your Bible ready? Look at Acts 16 with me. In Acts the 16th chapter, I'm going to begin reading there in verse 6. In Acts the 16th chapter, let's think there beginning in verse 6. There we read the text and it tells us in Acts 16 and verse 6 that they... Now who's that? That's Paul, his missionary companion and comrade Silas, and the young man Timothy, who's now traveling and preaching with them. They went through the region, Acts 16.6, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. You see that? Want to go to Bithynia. Want to be preaching in Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there and urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. If you're looking carefully at verse 7, What you're seeing there is that Paul wanted to go to Bithynia and God said no. Which means everything that happens after verse 7 actually in Paul's life functions as a second choice. Don't go to Bithynia. I want you to go down to Troas. From Troas you'll go to Philippi. Don't go to Bithynia. Now we read the rest of Acts 16 beginning in verse 8 and we think about the incredible things that happened as a result of the Macedonian call. We've got a song about that. We think about the conversion of Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the founding of the church at Philippi that loved Paul so much. I mean from verse 8 on, it's just all good. Philippi was great. Get ready though. Philippi wasn't Paul's first choice, was it? Paul unrolled the map and he pointed north to Bithynia. And God said, "Uh uh-uh. Which means Philippi and Troas and all of that is Paul's second choice. And that means at some level, Paul must have been disappointed when he pointed north and the Lord said, you're going south. So I'm asking, what do you do when hope has disappointed you? When you don't get what you wanted? When you find yourself in Troas... And what you really wanted was Bithynia. If we're going to build hope in our lives, we talked about hope last night as the working of God. That we are confident God is doing something in our lives right now on our journey from earth to heaven. As we're walking with the Lord, the Lord is working on us. But along the way, there's going to be disappointment. 
And we need to be authentic and real about that. And to do that and to help you with that, I want to talk about how Paul handled receiving a second choice and how you and I, how you and I need to handle our second choices. My friend Ken Williver did some writing about this in his blog, and that really set me to thinking. And I'm going to build on some of the things that Ken said and work with that and add some of my own ideas so that we can come to Troas, and even if that wasn't our first choice, we can still have hope and maybe even learn the value of Troas instead of Bithynia. You ready for that? I'm going to share with you four big ideas about having hope when life disappoints us when we got when we got our second choice. And that's going to begin by just realizing the truth of the matter is even when life's disappointing, we're going to continue to hope in God anyway. The passage I want here is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's see what the Word of God says in 1 Thessalonians 1. I'm reading there in verse number 2. Someone said, my Bible got a workout last night, and that's excellent. I really don't have anything to say, but the Word of God has a lot to say. Let's start in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2. We give thanks... We give thanks unto God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Paul says, because we remember before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. One translation says we pray to our God and Father about you as we think of your faithful work and your loving deeds and your enduring hope. What you see there is the trinity of faith, Love and hope that Paul uses regularly in his writings. And here, like everywhere else, these are verbs. These are action words. This is not about how we feel. No, work of faith, labor of love, enduring or persevering hope. These are things we do not feel. We don't feel faith. We don't feel love. And no, we don't feel hope. Okay. Yes, we do. At some level, those are emotional reactions. We have some feelings, but they are not primarily intended to be feelings. Think about what we say to somebody who says, I just don't feel like I love my wife. I've fallen out of love with my spouse. What do we say to that person? What we say to them is, hey, you need to repent. You need to repent and go home and love your wife like you promised and like God calls you to in the Scriptures. You need to do things that are loving towards her. It's not about how you feel. And I do want you to understand, as we're thinking about hope in this series, this is not an emotion that we suddenly call up. And all of a sudden, we just feel so sunny and warm and we feel better. It isn't about how we feel. What's it about, verse 3? It's about being steadfast. It's about a hope that anchors our soul. That's what we're looking for. And I would tell you in Acts 16, that is exactly what you see. Turn your Bible back and look again at our text in Acts the 16th chapter and notice there what you have. What you have is a ton of perseverance. In Acts 16, 6, we're in the region of Phrygia and Galatia because what? Because we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We are trying to go... No, can't go that way. Can't go that way. More steadfastness. We came up to Mysia and we tried to go to Bithynia, verse 7. And the Spirit of Jesus said, nope, not going to go there either. There's a lot of starting and there's a lot of stopping. But what you have is Paul and Silas and Timothy keep on keeping on. And they continue to hope in the Lord that God is working to bring them to the right place. And if you'll think about it, in Scripture you just see that all the time. What's Abraham do? He keeps putting one foot in front of another, even though that promised son hadn't shown up yet. I think about Caleb and the promise of the promised land. How long did it take him to get there? Forty 
years. And what about Hannah? Can you turn your Bible to the Old Testament? Could we say a word or two, sisters, about Hannah in 1 Samuel 2? In first, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 1 verse 2. In 1 Samuel 1 in verse 2, we are introduced to Hannah. Penanah had children, 1 Samuel 1 2, but Hannah had no children. And so there was sacrificing and Peninnah gave Hannah a ton of grief because, verse 6, she didn't have any children. Listen to the text. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Listen to verse 7. So it went on year by year. But Hannah didn't give up, did she? She kept hoping in the Lord. She kept praying to the Lord. And you know this story. Samuel, a mighty judge, is born from Hannah. And what you and I need to do when life is crummy and uncomfortable and it didn't work and that relationship betrayed me and I never thought I'd be in a place like this. What do we need to do? We keep hoping in the Lord. We keep putting one foot in front of another because we know that God is working in our lives and while we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and we don't always understand everything that God is doing, we know God is working. And sometimes that's hard and sometimes that's difficult, particularly in the midst of suffering. It can be a painful plod, but we choose to hope. I can show you that in Scripture too. In the Psalms, please, let's have a little Psalm 33. In Psalm 33, in Psalm 33, I'm looking at verse 17. In Psalm 33 and verse 17, you know, sometimes we forget that the Psalms were written by a young man who had been anointed king over Israel, and rather than receiving a crown and a throne, what he received was death threats and a number of assassination attempts from the present evil king Saul, who spent time chasing him in the wilderness, and David had to hide in caves. What's David say about that? Psalm thirty-three, seventeen: The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. Do you hear it? The deliberate decision, I'm not giving up on God. In fact, the Psalms is full of that kind of thing where this young man, as he grows with the Lord, continues to hope in God. In Psalm 39, we talked last night about being filled with hope by reading the Scriptures. Here's the Scriptures you want to be reading. Maybe you write these down on the back page of your Bible under the topic of hope. Psalm 39. What does Psalm 39, 7 say? Psalm 39 and 7. And now, O Lord... For what do I wait? My hope is in you. In Psalm 62. In Psalm 62 and verse 5. In Psalm 62 and 5. The psalmist says, God alone. For God alone, O my soul, I wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock and my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people, and pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. You hear how those passages breathe with hope? One more. Let's try Psalm 130. In Psalm 130, in the 130th Psalm, the psalmist continues to speak of the hope of the Lord when he says in Psalm 130 and verse 5, I will wait. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, Psalm 130 verse 5, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Don't worry about your feelings. 
Keep learning. Keep leaning on the Lord. Keep trusting in God to work and to do and to save and to deliver. That is exactly what Paul does while he can't go to Bithynia on his way to Troas. He says, I choose to hope. And he does that because Paul realizes, I'm not running the show. Who's running the show? Try Acts 16 again. Underline in your Bible the emphasis that's being made in our text, which is what? In Acts the 16th chapter, the emphasis here is not on Paul and Silas. The emphasis is on the Lord. In Acts 16.6, we went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Underline that to speak the word in Asia. And when we came to Messiah, verse 7, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. A vision, verse 9, appeared. Look at verse 10. Paul saw the vision. We sought to go on into Macedonia. Here it is, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel unto them. What a crucial principle for us to master this evening We aren't running the show. But Americans love to run the show. We like to think we're in control of everything. I'll give you an illustration of that. You got a weather app on your phone? Everybody has a weather app on your phone. Weather app ship on your phone when you pull it out of that box. Apple already has one ready for you. Some of us download more apps so that we can do more weather checking. I'm kind of a weather geek, which my wife says is a fancy way of saying I'm a weather nerd. But I want to know all about the weather everywhere. We like that, don't we? I read recently that people in third world countries don't much care about the weather. I was a little surprised by that. What do you mean? They don't check the forecast. They don't watch the weathermen on the local news, of course, in third world countries. There is no local news to watch, and they don't have smartphones to look at. But the main reason that they're not checking the weather is because because it doesn't make any difference. We check the weather because we want to know what to wear, so that we can be in control of our environment. But people in third world countries, it doesn't make any difference what the weather is. They don't have anything else to wear. And their plans won't change. They get up and they go to work no matter what. If it's cold, they go to work. If it's hot, they go to work. If it's raining, yeah, they have to go to work and do their job and try to get by and scrape by as best they can. They don't have other clothes. They don't have other choices. But in America, we want to control everything. So we're looking at that weather app so we can decide. Because when I look in my closet, I'm looking at what? I've got my light jacket. I've got a windbreaker if the wind is blowing. I've got a raincoat if it's raining. I've got a medium weight coat if it's kind of cold and might be colder. And then I've got the heavy coat. None of you have a heavy coat, do you? This sermon illustration's not even working here. And don't even ask me about my hunting gear. Sometimes I give my wife grief because she's standing at the closet and she's trying to decide which coat to wear because, of course, the coat has to match the handbag. That's important. And when I give Dina grief about that, what she reminds me is that I stand at my hunting closet and I want to match my camo because no self-respecting deer would ever walk out if I'm wearing blaze up top and hunter green down below. It's all gotta match. It's all gotta be right. If the weather's gonna be this, I'm wearing that. That way I'll be dry. That way I'll be warm. That way I'll be cool. I want to be in control. Is that you? Is that me? Is that what we hope in? Our ability to regulate, our ability to master, our ability to manage, to be on top of everything. Have we forgotten? We are in control. 
And you know, from time to time, I've seen those tracts that get handed out that say something about God has a wonderful plan for your life. And I've been critical of those kinds of tracts because in some ways, they act like if you become a Christian, God's got every second of the rest of your whole life mapped out. I think that's a terrible misunderstanding of how God works in our lives. But I'm afraid sometimes we push so far back from that, we've decided God has no plan for our life. That's a mistake and it's a hope killer. Look with me in your Bible in Genesis, please. In Genesis, the 45th chapter. In Genesis chapter 45, listen to somebody who found himself in a very difficult spot. In Genesis, please. In Genesis 45, 5. I'm talking about Joseph. I'm not sure I can get Joseph in this sermon about second choices. Because when your brothers sell you into slavery, that wasn't on your choice list at all. And then when you got there and you did what was right and you got thrown in jail because your boss's wife was sexually harassing you and you still did the right thing, hey, that wasn't Joseph's second choice either. But listen to what he says about it. In Genesis 45, 5, there Joseph says, in Genesis 45 and 5, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine's been in this land two years. There are yet five years in which there'll be neither plowing or harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. Joseph has it. God's running the show. God is in control. And so while it is so popular to believe I can do anything if I just believe in myself, it's so popular to think I've got an app for that. I'm on top of it. It's so easy to fall into the thinking I am the master of my fate. The Bible regularly reminds us I can plan, I can decide, I can make full preparations and then guess what? Everything can come crashing down around me by things and events and circumstances I had nothing to do with and I can not change. And you know that's true and I know that's true. And we got a double dose of that, didn't we? In a giant worldwide pandemic. Look with me over in the book of James, in James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, here's what we need. In James chapter 4... James says this, in James 4 and in verse 13, James says this, James 4 and verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend the year there and trade and make a profit. Mark Roberts International East Texas Version says, Listen up, people who think they're in control of their lives. Yet you don't know, verse 14, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist. You appear for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. And so you boast in your arrogance. This boasting is evil. I just don't hear people say, if the Lord wills very much anymore, do you? And James certainly doesn't mean that you need to use that little expression after every sentence you utter. But he certainly means that that expression must be more than a cliché that we tack on to our prayers, but that instead it must be engraved deeply upon our hearts as we understand God runs everything, not me. Think about it. We're rooted in Acts 16 tonight. Where is the place where God ever explains to Paul, hey, let me tell you why I didn't let you go to Bithynia. There's no such place. We speculate about that. Maybe somebody else would be better suited to preach the gospel in Bithynia. Maybe it was too dangerous in Bithynia. Paul might have got killed. Maybe God wanted Paul to go there, but there was great work to be done in Philippi, and there weren't enough workers, and a choice had I don't know. You don't know. Paul didn't know. And what that points us to is that we must be reminded that we are not in charge. And of course, that's a really good thing because the reality is we don't know enough 
to be the ones who are in control. And you see that as I think about our third principle. Guess what? Yes. Sometimes those second choices, what we didn't get first, and now we're in Troas instead of Bithynia, that can lead to glorifying God. I want to ask you about Paul. What does the text not say? The text does not tell us that Paul and Silas got frustrated, said, hey, if we can't go to Messiah, hey, I know the place to go, but if we're not going up there, we're out. We're out. We just quit. And then the text says, you know, they bought a farm in Bithynia, quit preaching and settled down and milked cows. Somehow it's hard to see Paul yelling at Timothy, get out there and get the milking done. That's not, that's not easy to think about. Because Paul refuses to quit. Paul refuses to give up. Paul is determined as I turn my Bible to Acts the 16th chapter to keep hoping in the Lord, keep serving the Lord. And so even though the Holy Spirit is acting in verse 6 to say not here, even though the Holy Spirit is saying not here in verse 7, they went down, verse 8, to Troas. What happens next? They aren't terrible failures. They don't get discouraged and quit being missionaries. Instead, what happens next is a spectacular success. Verse 10 tells us we decided to go to Macedonia. And verse 11 says, we set sail from Troas. For the very first time, the gospel crossed from Asia to Europe. And in Europe, the gospel took hold. I'm talking about the church in Philippi. I'm talking about the church in Thessalonica. I'm talking about the church in Corinth. I'm talking about the gospel going forward and going all kinds of places. It's not a failure. No, it's an opportunity, an incredible opportunity to serve God. I don't know. What would have happened if Paul had gone to Bithynia? That's the total opposite direction. I don't know what would have happened, but God knew what would happen if Paul would go to Troas and get on a boat and go to Philippi. Listen to Paul in Philippians 4. In Philippians 4 and verse 1. This is the church that comes from Paul receiving his second choice. Listen to that. Philippians 4 verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, Philippians 4, 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. My friends, it is not just that the gospel broke new ground into Europe here. No, it's more than that. A church is founded in Philippi. That helps Paul financially, but much more than just monetarily. This church takes Paul into their heart. They sustain him. They send messengers to check on him. They help him. At a time in his life where everywhere he goes, false teachers dog his steps. People literally throw rocks at him. At times when Paul goes places and preaches the most amazing sermons ever. Acts 17, read that in Athens. What a sermon. And everybody basically says, I don't know about that. And Paul could have given up the church at Philippi, the second choice place. They sustain him. They help him. They love him. They pray for him. Where would Paul be without that church? Where would we be without the letter he wrote to them? And it's not just that church. Did anybody notice there was a change in Acts 16? Look at Acts 16 again with me. Look at our text. Notice verse 6. In Acts 16 and verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Verse 7 they came to Messiah. Verse 8, they went down to Troas. But verse 10 says, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we. We? We who? 
We is Dr. Luke, who for the first time becomes part of Paul's evangelistic team. He met him apparently in Troas. And Luke becomes not only Paul's dear friend, but his faithful companion. And I've wondered sometimes as I've watched the life of Paul and all the things that happened to him, the beatings, getting stoned, being shipwrecked, got bit by a snake one time, all kinds of bad physical things happened to Paul, and yet he just keeps going like the Energizer bunny. And sometimes I wonder if it wasn't his personal physician traveling with him who patched him up and kept him going. But it's not just that Luke travels as a friend and beloved companion. It's Luke who somewhere along the way got out a pen and said, this is amazing. I'm going to write these stories down. Where does Luke ever enter the picture? If Paul goes to Bithynia, does he ever even meet him? Does the most important book of the New Testament, Acts, ever get written? See all that God knew when He said no to Paul's first choice and said, hey, instead, you're going here. God was working, wasn't He? And hope doesn't disappoint. In fact, that's the pattern throughout all of biblical history. We find Joseph being sold into the Egyptian slavery, but he saves the promises to Abraham at precisely the right time. Moses is rejected at first and spends 40 years in Midian, but he is the deliverer God wants at the right time. Deborah is a reluctant general who begs Barak to take command, but when he will not, she's in exactly the right place at the right time. I'm asking you tonight, how often does something make no sense in our lives? We prayed and prayed and prayed, and we just knew it had to be Bithynia. It wasn't Bithynia. Now we're in Troas. Can I say this? It may well be a day will come when you turn around and look back and you realize Troas was exactly where I needed to be. God was at work and God is glorified by what happened here. And I need you to double underline. That doesn't always happen in the next five minutes. As I'm looking at Acts chapter 16, Paul is probably 200 miles when he's in Mysia from Troas. You ever walk 200 miles? It's another 80 miles from Troas to Philippi. At some point, we're going to read about baptisms by the bushel in Philippi. A woman named Lydia, a Philippian jailer. And at some point, you have to know, Paul was saying, I glorify God that I got to come here. I'm so glad I didn't go to Bithynia. This is it. But when he was walking 300 miles, maybe a month, of trudging, not knowing? What was Paul thinking? And what was Paul saying? Sometimes it takes a while for the plan of God to unfold. In fact, it will be years from Acts 16, and Paul will find himself in prison when Dr. Luke will come to him and say, You know, I hear you talk about Jesus. And while you've been here in prison in Caesarea, I've gone and talked to a lot of people who met Jesus, who knew Jesus personally, who heard Him talk, and I've written their stories down. Would you take a look at this? I'm going to put this together and call it a gospel. And Paul must have unrolled that scroll and thought, Who knew the doc can write? This is an amazing account of the life of our Savior. And it comes because the Spirit of God inspired Luke, who affixed himself to Paul when Paul was on his way to his second choice. Which brings us then to this final and concluding observation. The reality is we need to be content then.
in the place that we are. I'll read again in Philippians, in Philippians 4. Paul tells the Philippian brethren in Philippians 4 and in verse 11. He says in Philippians 4 and verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, Philippians 4.11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I've learned the secret. You know, facing plenty, facing hunger, facing abundance, and facing need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I must tell you, Paul did not write Philippians 4.13 so that the Christians could write something on their sweatbands when they played the Roman soldiers in softball. That's not the purpose of Philippians 4. That isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about the working of God in his life in what he's hoping for and who he is. And the reality is, the more you know about Paul's life, the more you read verse 11 and 12 and 13, and you might almost wonder if he's telling the truth. I mean, think of the things that happens to this guy. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul has a list of bad things that happened to him longer than your arm. Everything possible happened to him. How could Paul say that? Because Paul has learned to accept that God is in control, God is at work, he hopes in that, and whatever comes his way, he glorifies God. Paul says, I'm content with second choices. And I might point you to a couple of very practical admonitions in that direction. First and foremost, when we get a second choice and we're disappointed, we really wanted Bithynia, Troas doesn't look so good right now. What do we do about that? First and foremost, open your mouth. Pour out your heart to God. That's what David does in the Psalms. Jeremiah puts a whole book of that together. It's called the book of lamentations. Do it reverently. Do it honestly. But God knows how you feel. And real relationships always have as their hallmark authentic Honesty, open your mouth, pour yourself out to God. But secondly, close your mouth and stop complaining. You still in Philippians? Look at Philippians 2 and verse 14. Paul says there, do all things, Philippians 2, 14, without grumbling or disputing. We are not good at Philippians 2, 14. When Bithynia gets canceled, what we are really good at is telling everybody that's within hearing distance, my life is not working out. Everything is terrible. Everything, Everybody's against me. And if not enough people are within shouting distance to hear all of that, guess what? Uh-huh. I can fire up social media so that the world wide web can know how mistreated I am, how disappointed I am, how horrible my life is. Paul says, stop it. You talk to God about it, but you don't need to tell everybody else about it. Because the third thing we want to do is open our eyes and say, All right, here I am in Troas. What can I do here to honor God? That's why complaining is so devastating to our walk with God. That's why it's so destructive to our hope. Because when we're complaining, who are we focusing on? Me. Focusing on myself. Looking at myself. When we honor God, when we say, how can we glorify God in this second choice? Now our focus is up. That's Paul. Paul never says, all right. I'll tell you what, if I can't go to Bithynia, I'm done. We're going home, boys. I'm not going to put up with this wander around business. If God wants me to preach, the least He can do is tell me clearly where to go. Uh-uh. Paul is committed to doing the will of God. That's a non-negotiable. And look at the freedom then that that gives him. I'm going to do God's will over here. Oh, no, no, not, don't do God's will over here. Well, well, God, maybe I'll do God's will here. No, not here. Oh, there. Okay. That's what I wanted to do anyway. I was going to do God's will there. I was going to do God's will there. Couldn't go those places. I'll just go there and do God's will. Paul is stubbornly determined. He will not quit. He will not give up. 
And he won't stop trying to glorify God. He keeps hoping in the Lord. And everyone can do that. All of us can honor God with our lives. All of us can say, I don't like these circumstances. I prayed about this a lot. This isn't what I wanted, but here I am and I will glorify God. Maybe the key, maybe the key here is that that is what Paul's life's about. Sometimes the reason I'm so mad about getting my second choice is because I'm about me. I'm about my glory. I'm about what I wanted. And when God doesn't deliver what I demanded, when I get my second choice, I kick and scream and cry like a baby. It would be different if my life was focused on the Lord. Because then whatever life handed me, I just honor the Lord. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 1? Listen to him. Listen to how hopeful he is in a Roman prison cell. Listen to what he says. In Philippians 1 and verse 20, Paul says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Go glorify God. That's what I'm going to do if I stay alive. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That would be far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I can't even decide. I'll just have to leave it up to the Lord. Kind of think my first choice is to go and be with Jesus. But it'd be awesome if I'd come see you Philippians again, preach the gospel in Philippi, help and encourage you. God will have to decide, but wherever I am and whatever happens, I'm glorifying God here or in eternity. God will be in control. God knows what's best. I'll just do what I always do, which is live for God. That's My hope and what Paul shows is incredible resilience and stubborn determination to hope in God, to let God work in his life and to be content with whatever God does. So where are you right now in your life? Well, I was on the way to Bithynia, but now I'm in Troas. I hope that doesn't mean that you make a big black X in your daily journal. And I know that I'm not sure that that'll mean someday you'll be President of the United States. But I know this. Sometimes life is what happens to us while we were busy making other plans. And your plans may have been altered. So now, you're in Troas. Will you do as well as Paul did? You will. If you believe God is at work, and your hope in the work of God anchors your soul. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, I'm praying for those who are disappointed in their lives, who have hardship and suffering, betrayal and hurt. I'm praying for those who wanted so much to be in Bithynia right now, but instead are struggling to make their way to Troas. Renew their strength, Father, and give them more hope in Your working so they can glorify You in all that You are doing as You work with us, as we walk with You, 
to someday come and be with you. These things we pray in Jesus' name and Amen. If you're here this evening and you don't know about Jesus, but you hear of this hope that sustains life when things are hard, we want to talk with you more about Jesus the Christ. Who He is. How we know that He's the Son of God. How we can trust in Him. And what it means to be in relationship with Him as you walk with Him every day. If you grab me, you grab Brother Warren. We'll get a cup of coffee. We'll talk with you at your convenience over an open Bible and learn more about Jesus. If you are here this evening though and you know, you know about Jesus, you just never put your trust in Him. Maybe you're hoping in yourself. Maybe you're blinding yourself and telling yourself, Oh, I am in control. Now is your time. Now is the time to say, I must trust in Christ. I must hope in Him. You can do that tonight. As you confess your faith in Jesus Christ, as you turn away from sin, that's called repentance. And as you're immersed in water for the remission of your sins, as Acts 2.38 teaches, you can become a Christian with your hope in Jesus even this night. If you are a Christian, you're away from the Lord. The reason you're running on empty is because you're out of hope. You can't hope in yourself when you're away from the Lord. And you know better, and God knows better, and God is longing for and looking for you to return to Him. Now is the time to say, I will hope in the Lord again. I'm going to let God work in my life to cleanse me of my sins as I turn to Him in repentance. We'll help you, brother. We'll help you, sister as you serve the Lord in a new and better way. We want to help you have the hope that comes from being anchored to Jesus the Christ. Can we help you make your way down front while we stand, while we sing?